be with you this morning. It makes me very, very happy to be able to be here. The last time I was in this pulpit preaching was um, in February of 2020. And uh, so much has happened since then. Wow. It's unbelievable. But we're making it. We're making it. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Amen. I'm going to ask you, I think Jordan had a wonderful idea, that out of respect for God's word, if you're able, just stand for this second reading. We are reading and we're studying through the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and we have come to chapter 20. That just shows you how long we've been at this. Um, maybe a half a chapter a week or something like that. But this, we've come to Apostles, um, actually Apostles 20, uh, verses 1 through 16. And we're reading here in the English Standard Version. It's in your bulletin if you want to follow along. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Thanks be to God for his inestimable word. Now you may be seated. And let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. 
wake up, sleepyheads. I hope I'm not saying this at the end of the sermon. You know? um, if you have been here in church or listening in online over the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that Paul and his companions were about three years into his third missionary journey. They had come to Ephesus, a very important city in the region of Asia Minor, and stayed for a couple of years, Paul preaching the gospel there among both the Jews and the Greeks, as he always said, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. As was his pattern, he had been in the synagogue for three months, and then he transitioned. Uh, Ephesus was a destination Paul had wanted to achieve on his second missionary journey several years earlier. Because no one had ever taken the news about Jesus there before. The people were unreached. And Paul wanted to go into unreached territory whenever possible so that he would not be building on someone else's foundation. But Paul had been prevented at that time by the Holy Spirit and redirected instead into Europe, into Macedonia, as you'll find in Acts 16. Traveling on that journey with Paul, on that second journey, were Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And Luke they met at Troas, the Gentile doctor Luke. And Luke is the author of Acts, I'm sure you know by now. So Timothy and Luke are present in today's passage as well. Now on his third journey, God knew that the harvest in Ephesus was ripe. The Holy Spirit allowed it, and Paul went in to Ephesus, and the ministry was very, very fruitful there. Paul pressed his case daily at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, a secular venue for philosophical discourse across the spectrum of interests and beliefs renowned throughout the province of Asia. This was tremendously successful so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles there through Paul, in which the Holy Spirit made it undeniably clear that the power of God is in the name of Jesus, and that power in the name of Jesus is for those who belong to him. Amen. The message of the gospel came to the region so effectively that many citizens burned their books of magic, this is reviewed from last week, burned their books of magic and turned from worshiping the goddess Artemis, who was large in that region, that was her, her town, turning from Artemis to a living relationship with the Lord Jesus. As you may recall, there was a serious economic impact for the community of those who made a living selling religious objects for Artemis worship. Little models of her and replicas of her temple in Ephesus and went on a fire sale. The merchants pushed back on this, drumming up major civil unrest, a very noisy disturbance. As you might remember, for two hours shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this unrest was eventually put down by the civil authority. The clerk of the town was able to break down the disturbance that the merchants brought against Paul and his Macedonian companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. It was a business complaint masquerading as a religious concern. And interestingly, the religious overlay was what gave it its fighting punch with the crowd. Clearly, this kind of confusion has been with us here in the United States of America throughout the history of our nation where cultural and economic idols get confused with principles of faith. It can be very dangerous because oftentimes we lose our ability to think clearly where religious beliefs are concerned. 
But in Ephesus, the city authorities were able to see through it and were able to put the conflict back in its place. This was a great example of what Paul wrote to the Romans, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. And as we see throughout the book of Acts, Paul often called upon the laws of the land for protection from outraged religionists of one stripe or another, using his status as a Roman citizen to get a fair hearing. The wisdom from above is, first of all, pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So said Jesus' brother James, who, after all, grew up in the same household with our Lord. The gospel is scandalous in some ways. In every age, it's exclusive. It's overarching. It claims to be the truth and to speak for God. The gospel can be a stumbling stone in those ways, but it is not a battering ram. It is a fragrant offering to God. Its power is the power to save. It has the power to convict, but yet God's kindness leads us to repentance. When Jesus' message was rejected, he was sad. He wept. He longed. He prayed over Jerusalem. Whenever Christians go to war personally and whenever nations go to war corporately in the name of Christ, be careful. Let's be honest. What's really driving it? It could be economic. It could be about power. It could be hegemony. The gospel is designed to break down the dividing walls, not put them up. Under wise governance, the uproar settled down. The settling down was reasonable, not authoritarian and directed the complainants to pursue lawful means. This Pax Romana enabled the message of the gospel to travel freely. Nonetheless, note that the gospel also traveled when messengers were under persecution. The conditions are not as important as God's desire that none should perish, but all that be brought to a knowledge of the truth. Paul had said what he needed to say, and he was ready to move on. He had already sent his companions, Timothy and Erastus, into the next leg of the journey. But he waited. He wanted to wait until the uproar died down before he gathered the disciples of Ephesus together. That was wise. And he wanted to gather them together before he left town to encourage them and bid them farewell. Then Paul set out to regain his rejoin his companions and revisit the congregations that they had planted in Macedonia several years before that. So Luke now tells us that through all the cities and little towns, Paul traveled on foot, giving much encouragement to the believers in each place. When I read that, I began to wonder what that encouragement was like. Encouragement. Paraklesos is a word that shares meaning with what Paul a name for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. It means to come alongside of, to counsel, to comfort, to console, encourage, urge, appeal, exhort. It's a very active process, which we can observe Paul doing through his letters. What was Paul's encouragement like? While traveling to Corinth, at this time, he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, and it sounded like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. That's a lot of comfort. That's how it starts. And then it proceeds into exhortation, guidance, correction, if needed, forgiveness. And finally, he says, you are our letter written on our hearts. You are a letter from Christ written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Just a small sample of what encouragement sounds like from Paul. So Paul eventually arrived in Greece to the coastal town of Corinth, where he met up with the others and stayed three months. While Paul was there, he wrote the epic letter to the Romans. And in this congregation, we've studied Romans carefully, but I think it would be cool for you to go back and read it again in the context of what we're learning in the study of Acts. Because you can see how much of Paul's experiences traveling in mission with the Holy Spirit have informed the things he writes here. It's not actually a dusty old book, as some may think. It's alive. Now, Paul did have a schedule in mind, although he had learned that was subject to change. He was trying to go to Jerusalem by the Passover. He'd been collecting contributions for the poor believers in Jerusalem from the various Gentile churches in Asia Minor and was bringing the results of this campaign of giving as he traveled into Greece. Even those in Macedonia who were deeply poor had shared, and Paul had written ahead to the Corinthian church, asking them to give generously as well. As he wrote, and I think this is very important, it is not our intention that others may be relieved while you are burdened, but that there may be equality. At the present time, your surplus will meet their need, so that in turn their surplus will meet your need. Then there will be equality. This is biblical Christian economics. And it was an element of discipleship that Paul was teaching to the new believers. Costs, commitment. But when Paul reached his friends in Corinth, he found that he could not set sail for Syria as he had hoped. Another change in his plans. The team got intelligence that some Jewish leaders, again the religious leaders, probably those he defended in Ephesus, were plotting against him just as he was about to set sail. So Paul turned the trip around and with his whole retinue of companions walked back to Troas, overland from Macedonia. He would try to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost instead. So that gave them, providentially perhaps, another 50 days to do as the Holy Spirit would direct. Another lesson learned. Don't hold on too tightly to your own arrangements and ideas. We sometimes call that the hardening of the categories. With the spirit of Jesus, you will need to be nimble. It's okay if your plans change. Praise the Lord who works all things to the good. Amen. Everything that's in scripture is there for a reason. There are two verses here, four and five, that simply list Paul's traveling companions and where they're from. Well, it reads like a diversity awareness team. The seven who accompanied him were Greeks and Macedonians, seemingly of high and of low social extraction, traveling together, a multinational, multicultural group. They did not originate from one tribe or language or social stratum. They were all 
citizens of heaven and their kinship was there so again we see this commitment to equality not uniformity but equality the idea of equality was an offense to the Roman world but it should be a central characteristic of Christian living then and now Equality, economic parity, cultural diversity, unity, loving kindness, these should be in our very nature. Paul is taking this crew to Jerusalem with the offering from their churches in a display of the unity and solidarity of the body of Christ, bringing to the church in Jerusalem, which was basically Jewish converts. That was deliberate. That's why Luke gave it space in his account. There's a lot that went on. Very few things got into these 16 verses. Two verses were given over to the names and the nationalities of that party. And amen. That is a characteristic of spirit-driven ministry. And so they head for Troas, which was Luke's hometown. Troas, the chief port of North West Asia Minor, prosperous and important, was a chief gateway to and from Northern Europe. And that is the way that the gospel spread into Northern Europe, through Troas. Troas holds the heart of the story today, so I'm going to take some time to break it down. And then I'm going to just look back and summarize quickly four characteristics of doing ministry with the Holy Spirit. So in Troas, Paul and company met up with Luke and the others who have sailed from Corinth. Although they're still on a schedule, they want to wait a week for the opportunity that they will have on the first day of the week, the day of Christian worship, to meet with the believers and bid farewell. At this meeting, something astonishing happens. And also something that doesn't happen that's astonishing by not happening. I think. So this is about an all-night revival meeting. There is, amongst the commentators, some disagreement about which day of the week it was when that all-night meeting began, whether it was Saturday night after the end of Shabbat or whether it was Sunday night after a regular work day when everyone was tired and hungry already. The debate is down in the details of whether the day was being reckoned by the Jewish or Roman calendar time frames. Luke mentions midnight, which is Roman. So I'm favoring Sunday, Sunday night. It seems like it was a regular thing for Christians to meet on Sunday nights, to have worship, have teaching, share a fellowship meal, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, which was known as breaking bread. Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Something that happened on the way to Emmaus, you might remember the people he was walking with didn't recognize him, but then when he sat at table with them, broke the bread, gave praise to God his Father, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? He was known to us in the breaking of the bread. A sweet communion with the living Christ. It was worth everything that they had to put up with. They met in an upper room. It was three floors up, so it wouldn't have been easy to step outside for a little breath of fresh air. On this occasion, I imagine there were even more than the usual number of worshipers there because Paul had been in town a week already. They all knew he was there and that he was going to speak at the meeting. He was the founder of their church. 
He was the one who had brought the good news to Troas in the first place. They loved him. They wanted to hear him. Paul was getting ready to depart for Jerusalem to pass on the final words of encouragement and exhortations and bid farewell, maybe for a long, long time or forever. He knew that there were many dangers ahead and the Holy Spirit had warned him of this in every town. Paul intended to speak at length before the meal. A lot of people had brought their torches. The worshippers were packed in there with the warmth of their bodies and the torches and the heat and the smoke. It might have been hard to stay awake. Of course, this style of meeting was normal and to be expected, but maybe this was more so. It was hot. Maybe more so. It was late. Maybe more so. Paul talked long. Maybe more so. Even Luke, who was there and wrote it down, used the words, as Paul prolonged his speech, as Paul talked on and on until midnight. And Luke describes that there was a young man named Eutychus, which means lucky, (laughs) who was sitting in a window, maybe to get the air. And he began to sink off into a deep sleep. He was fighting sleep, the words tell us, Luke says. Fighting and eventually losing the battle and being overcome by sleep. Eutychus fell not in, but out of the window, three floors down, and he landed on the ground and was picked up dead. Wouldn't that put a punctuation mark into the middle of a worship service? I can think of three times in my life when I've been in church and somebody called out, is there a doctor in the house? Three times, a doctor quickly rose to the aid of someone in a medical emergency. I remember those occasions clearly, indelibly. Dr. Luke was in the house, and the boy fell, and the cry went up. He ran down. He could tell that the young man was deceased. He wrote, they picked up his dead body. Surely then everyone ran down in a panic, in shock, grief-stricken. They for sure were yelling and crying and not like, oh, no big deal, Paul is dead. We know they were beside themselves because later on, Luke says, they were more than a little comforted. Paul also ran down a course, alarmed, no doubt praying, and he threw himself on the boy and took him up in his arms. I think he probably waited on God for a moment there, just listening. What is the Spirit saying here? And then he said, do not be alarmed. His Spirit is in him. Do not be alarmed. His Spirit is in him. Thank God his Spirit is in him. That meeting could have ended right there, right? Isn't it enough for one night? (laughs) No, it was not. And here's the other remarkable part. They didn't stop the meeting. They all went back in. And what could be more fitting than this? They celebrated communion then together. They broke the bread of life and poured out the wine of the new covenant. They met with Jesus then around the table and they rejoiced. Then Paul resumed his message and kept on speaking until daybreak. (laughs) He had a lot to say. (laughs) 
And they took the not lucky but blessed young man home alive, and they were greatly comforted. To God be the glory. We're alive because Jesus is alive, and even when we depart from this physical body, we are still alive. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? From Romans 8, 11, the letter that Paul wrote while in Corinth just a few weeks before, we read, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's the Holy Spirit, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul is talking about the resurrection. No, we can't all keep on staying alive in the way that Eutychus was taken home alive. We will each shed this earthly tent at some point in time. What happened with Eutychus was a wonderful miracle and a merciful demonstration of God's resurrection power in the visible, natural world. But believe me, that was just a foretaste of the power of eternal life that lives in every believer. This material life, it's a shadow of the power of eternal life that lives in every believer. When we put our lives into the life of Christ by God's word, we have already crossed over. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 3.14, we read this, We know that we have passed from death into life, because we love the brothers. He who does not let his brother abides in death. You know, I've seen people talk about this story as a cautionary tale against falling asleep in church. (laughs) That you've got to get better prepared to stay awake for the sermon. Or I've heard people criticize Paul for being so long-winded. But I'm not going to do any of that. Because I've also heard it said, and I agree with it, that it's far better to pull yourself to church and struggle to stay awake if you're tired than not to come at all. It's far better to sleep in the church, in the presence of the saints, and may your spirit be refreshed, than not to come at all. Amen. Amen. Come as you are, even if you're sleepy. (laughs) May God give you peace. Or join online if you can't come in, and let us know that you're here. But I've heard it said that the real danger is not so much physically falling asleep in the church building as spiritually falling asleep a minute or two after you leave the building. James, brother of Jesus, said that this was like looking at yourself in the mirror and then turning away and forgetting what you look like. Why are we here? Because in Christ we're a new creation every single hour of the day, every day of the week. I want church to be the place where we're so reminded of that truth, that truth of the new creation, that we'll long to feel the gospel stretching and growing within us every day. Every night we'll look at ourselves in the spiritual mirror and we'll notice there's a difference. 
we'll all be making plans and practicing how we can be more awake, alert, aware of what's happening, and what God is calling us to do about it. There's a little more to the scripture portion, and it is simply this. The crew set sail for Assos, where Paul had arranged to be picked up, because he wanted to go by land. Some of them, including Luke, went to the ship and sailed to Assos. Paul went there on foot. Why? Probably because continuing as he had been, he was stopping in many places to talk to and encourage people. This is a style. Paul was excellent at explaining the gospel systematically, but most of his writings are pastoral applications of the gospel. Practical theology, or church dogmatics, you could call it, his observations and reflections on what was happening all around him. His observations and reflections in the light of God's life in him on what was happening all around him. And this is something that each of us can and should do every day of our lives. This is a way of being awake. It can be accomplished in so many ways, customized by you. Reading the scriptures, being observant of the world around you and the Holy Spirit's voice inside you, and making application, embodiment, enculturation of the fruit of that encounter with God into life. The seed of the word planted into your life, growing there, bearing fruit. This is a continual process that is worthy simply by happening. It doesn't matter how far along you are. It's good to be prepared for running when the baby starts to crawl. But you would never say that crawling is not important. Crawling is the building block of running. And that's how we start to awaken. Amen. The book of the Acts of the Apostles could be just as accurately called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. In every chapter, the Apostles' partnership with the Lord through the direction and direct action of the Holy Spirit is plainly obvious. As a church that seeks to be missional, moving out into the community of Huntington Valley with the living word of Jesus, we want to put ourselves into that same mindset, into the same kind of ability to respond to the Holy Spirit that we see in our book. There are four qualities of ministry I have highlighted through this passage, all marks of Paul and his missional companions responding together to the companionship and direction of God's Spirit. And these are nimble, encouraging, powerful, and awake. Be nimble means light in action, agile, able to change direction quickly. In Paul's ministry, we see him setting out each time with a strategic itinerary based on factors like, is it a major city, a crossroads of commerce, is there a high Jewish population he wants to reach, or Gentile population, unreached people, unexplored territory, under the Holy Spirit's direction. Paul doesn't always know why he can't go to a certain place at a particular time. But he does seem to be all in with the change Ever God presented to him. We want to be nimble. For a visual, I was thinking about the Philadelphia Eagles in an agility drill. You know, those great big husky guys with little steps through the ladder. Nimble. Be encouraging. The words that Paul spoke everywhere were encouraging words. This means often very comforting and sometimes discomforting. 
but all with the aim of spurring love and growth in the other. Let our ministries be marked by encouraging. Be powerful. Accompanied by signs and wonders. If the Holy Spirit wants to empower you for some act that you don't think you can do without him, let Respond. Take a risk. Do not be afraid. And finally, be awake. Alert, aware, tuned into the world and to the Lord and to yourself. And how these three stories are overlapping each day. Reflecting, listening, praying with the Bible on one knee and today's news on the other. Nimble, encouraging, powerful, awake. Take one of these qualities and make it your own for the week. And now our two questions. Ask God what you need to be or do as a result of hearing this word today. And ask yourself with whom you need to share it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you continually teach us what love is as we spend time with you, as we let your words sink into our hearts in the ground that the Spirit has softened there. May the Holy Seed find room to grow in us so that as we mature, we may become fruitful servants and friends with you, Jesus. Remind us of your commands and make them second nature to us. Lord, write them in our hearts as a gift of your love. We want to please you. And make faithful use of all that you give us, including this worship this morning. May we rejoice in hope, be patient in trouble, constant in prayer. O Lord, may the Lamb of God receive in us the rewards of his suffering. And Lord, we lift our faces to you along with all those among us and everywhere who are in need of healing in body, mind, and spirit. And we especially pray today for the family of Betty Hewitt as she has departed to be with you and her service. May it be a blessing to many. May it say the things that the family wants to say on her behalf. May it represent you well, Lord. And may many, many people be brought closer to you through what happens on Saturday or Friday, Friday night. And now, Lord, we want to pray as you taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now we have the Heidelberg Catechism, Day 17.